Peter Minuet, Peter Minui, Peter Minot. As we discussed in a previous episode, there are many different ways to say this man's last name, and people have been debating how to say it for a very long time. But the point that I made before, and I'm going to make now, is that probably he was called all these things in his lifetime. His family was from Wallonia, and he was a Walloon, which is an area in modern-day Belgium, which at the time was called the Spanish Netherlands, and the Walloons speak a form of French. So Minoui, or Minot, was probably closer to how his family was referred to when they lived in Wallonia. However, he spent most of his life as a refugee, building up a little life for himself, quite successfully, I might add, in Germanic parts of Europe. And in the German language, they have an obsession with pronouncing every consonant, every syllable, every letter. And so Minuet is probably how the Germans feebly tried to pronounce his last name. So for most of his life, people around him probably said Minuet. And because this is my podcast, when I grew up, my teacher told me Minuet. So I'm going to default to Minuet, and from now on, I'm going to call him that. Anyway, we see this young man, Peter Minuet, built himself up in a world that he didn't belong to as a refugee from the Spanish Netherlands, became influential in the cities that he lived in, along with his family, he got into the diamond cutting business in the Netherlands. And somewhere along the way, he gained some navigational and surveying experience. Now, how he became the man we know today is that he probably had an association with Killian Van Rensselaer, who we, who we have mentioned before in previous episodes. This guy was primarily a diamond merchant before he got involved in these trading companies. So the diamond cutter knows the diamond merchant, and the diamond merchant has invested tons of money into these trading companies, especially the Dutch West India Company. It's my theory, and I don't believe this is supported anywhere else, that this is how Peter Minuet ends up working for the Dutch West India Company. It's through Van Rensselaer. Now, if you haven't heard the previous chapters of this podcast, I'll just be very brief with his career, but it's pretty amazing. So Peter Minuet is hired to do a survey of New Netherland, to map it out, and probably also instructed to look for mineral goods. This is why you would have somebody with a gem-cutting background going out to do survey work, making maps. The two don't seem to go together, but in this case, they do. While surveying the very young colony, he discovers the colony is in absolute ruin, about to fall apart completely. And in fact, its director is under house arrest by its own colonists. Through pathways we don't completely understand, he becomes the new director of the colony. This might have been through Van Rensselaer's influence. It might have been from good letters written by the colonists back to the directors of the company. But he pretty much promotes himself into the position of the new director. And as director, Peter Minuet saves the colony. He purchases Manhattan Island. And then another thing that he does is he gathers all these failing settlements that the Dutch had set up, mostly full of Walloon settlers, much like himself, a Walloon. And he gathers them together into what is going to be called New Amsterdam which is now called New York City. So that's going to be set up originally by Peter Minuet. This act alone saves the colonists from basically starving to death or being picked off by Native Americans whom they really didn't establish solid relations with yet. On that same note, he seems to have been the director that made some sort of agreement with the Haudenosaunee and especially the Mohawk Nation. This relationship in particular will save the colony for decades to come, especially against the English who were terrified of the Mohawk. Later, he conspires with Van Rensselaer to set up this patroonship system, where rich investors in the company could spend a little extra money to carve out a little bit of New Netherland from themselves and basically make a, a fiefdom, some sort of medieval manor of the coastline to North America. It sounds strange, but he was part of that. 
But the thing is, inside of the company, what they called the Patroonship faction, something happened to it. We know that Van Rensselaer was the leader of it. We know that he had very good relations with Peter Minuet. And yet, authors have argued that the, the Patroonship, the Patroonship faction lost power at some point. But from my point of view, and based on what I've read, it seems like the Patroonship faction just kind of dissolved. Because Van Rensselaer and another Patroon named Samuel Blomert, they have some kind of a falling out, and it's not spelled out, but we'll see it as we go through the life of Peter Minuet in the future here. So it's my belief that this Patroonship party just kind of fell apart and dissolved away, probably because Van Rensselaer went for the power grab. What's the power grab? Well, the next director after Peter Minuet is fired for some unspecified reason is going to be Van Rensselaer's nephew. So let's fast forward a little bit. Peter Minuet has been fired. He's let go. It's very clear from the records. He did not want to leave. He was let go by some portion of the company and replaced by Van Rensselaer's nephew. Now, after all this goes down on his way back to the Netherlands, he's actually imprisoned for a while in England or detained in the very least because he helped the Dutch squat on English land claims because, of course, England claims the same territory that the Netherlands claim in the New World. Now, sitting in an English prison, or at least being detained for some time in England, I wonder if he looked back and he thought to himself, you know what, Van Rensselaer was my friend, he gave me all these opportunities, he helped bring me up in the world, and I paid this man back with special favors, I helped him set up his patroonship, I did a bunch of deals with Native Americans on his behalf and the behalf of his friends, and how does he repay me? He replaces me with his fat, alcoholic nephew. And Peter Minuet, on his way out of New Netherland, he sells all his stuff there, all his land, all his possessions, his, his, his house. He sells it all to the nephew, or he sells it to Van Red, and he gets out of there. You could tell by those, those transactions, he has no intention of coming back to this colony. So as he was sitting in that prison, or detained somewhere in England, he was probably thinking to himself, how am I going to get back at Van Ren? Or could I get back at Van Ren? What's next for me? Now, a lot of writers don't put this revenge quality into P Peter Minuet, but I'm going to, because it, it definitely, if you see all the things he does for the next decade or two, the only way you could categorize that is a huge middle finger to New Netherland, a huge middle finger to Van Rensselaer, a huge middle finger to everyone who led to him being fired after he basically saved the colony. I'm not going to say basically saved the colony. He saved the colony. And so our story of New Sweden starts with a Walloon, who was the director of the New Netherland colony, seeking his revenge. I know I'm seven-something minutes into this podcast, and I've dragged this intro out way too long, but this is the Other States of America History Podcast, and here is our intro music. How much does the average person actually know about the nation of Sweden or the Swedish people? Everyone knows the word. They know generally where the country is. But I think if you ask them to say something about the history of Sweden or the current state of Sweden, you would get either information that was far after the time period we're talking about or way before the time period we're talking about. They'd either mention the uh, healthcare system of Sweden today, their mixture of capitalist and socialist policies, or they would mention Vikings. And both eras are way far and beyond what we're talking about. So 
For most people, the Sweden that will found New Sweden is a complete blank. It's a blank slate. You don't know anything about it. Neither did I. But I learned over time a couple of things. And we're going to go over some background information really quick, just so you know who these people are that are going to be founding this colony. And then eventually how Peter Minuet plays into all of this. The Swedes are a Nordic people, which might sound redundant to say because you probably already knew that part. But the Nordic people, they all speak what's called a North Germanic language. So we have Danish, Norwegian, Swedish, and then we have some smaller languages like Icelandic. And they're all very closely related to one another. They're all a Germanic language, much like English or Dutch. But in being a subset of those languages, the Nordic languages, they are even more so uh, related to one another. So they're all very closely related. They're brothers and sisters to one another, but they're cousins to German and English and Dutch, and those, those other types of languages. And the distance between the Nordic languages and the other branches of the Germanic language tree came about 200 AD, linguists say. Somewhere around there, the Nordic languages started to pull away and become less mutually intelligible. Meaning around 200 AD, the Nordic languages started to really pull away from the other Germanic languages to the point where you couldn't converse easily between them. So this is when the Nordic people started to go off onto their own trajectory. And we can't really say, oh, well, these are what the Germans are all about. These are what the Germans believe. Because the types of Germans have been so diversified by this point that the Nordic people constitute their own cultural sphere. Now, after the Roman Empire fell, there are many areas of Europe that simply didn't have the defenses they would have had before or during the Roman Empire. Think about it. If you have the Roman Empire for your protection, that's, that's a pretty good guy to have on your side. Now, afterwards, have the Roman Empire having eroded away, now you're used to culturally not having a large military class of your own, and it's going to take a couple centuries for that to kind of come back into vogue. Europe is open to be attacked at this point in time, after the fall of the Roman Empire, once again. And who's going to fill that gap? Who's going to take advantage of that? It is the people that we refer to as Vikings. Now, a Viking is not an ethnic group. A Viking is a profession. That's somebody who goes off, explores, pillages, and perhaps finds new settlements. So once again, Viking is not an ethnic group. And I've seen some, like, DNA websites that'll say, oh, you're 20% Viking. Well, you can't be 20% Viking. That's like saying you're 20% you're fireman or, you know, 35% nuclear engineer. You can't, it doesn't work that way. So the Vikings were, was an occupation held by a lot of the men who were of the Nordic groups at this time. There was lots of different ones, but in general, we could, it's the same as the nations we see today. We had the Danes, who are now in Denmark. We had the Swedes, Sweden. And we had the Norwegians, derived from terms like the Norse or the Northmen. So you can kind of see how this all ties together. So Sweden did have Vikings, but they weren't the Vikings that you hear about raiding places in England and Ireland and all those other places. Sweden showed up there occasionally with their Vikings, but the Swedish Vikings tended to go east instead of west. And this particular strain of Vikings set up a trade network from Sweden all the way through Eastern Europe to the Black Sea to the Orient, basically. Sort of like an extension of the Silk Road from... Turkey today, all the way through to the north of Europe. And the Swedish Vikings had an, a, a huge, a huge, massive, large, insanely large impact on Eastern Europe. One that you might not be aware of, many people aren't. In fact, the tribe or band of Swedish Vikings that ended up in this part of Europe, they referred to themselves, one of the bands anyway, as the Rus. Now you see where this is going. 
So the foundation of the Russian nation, the Russian empire, the political foundation, was actually these Swedish Vikings who started a nation state at the center, both historically and geographically, of what is going to become Russia. They were the founders of the Rurikid dynasty, and they founded Rus, and Kivion Rus, and all these successor states, and they were actually the rulers in Russia all the way up until, where's my date? The 17th century. I believe early 17th century. It's amazing. And at the source of all of that and all that history are these Swedish Vikings. The Germanic peoples of Europe were doing this all over Europe at the time. It wasn't just Sweden into Russia. We already talked about the Netherlands, how that area was originally occupied by the Franks, and the Dutch today are probably majority descendant from those, those Frankish tribes that were in a confederacy, and how the Franks eventually lent their name to the area of France. So we had movement that way. And then I believe the Danes, the, the Viking Danes, eventually took over part of France called Normandy. Normandy, literally Norman, Northman, Norse. And then the, the leaders of Normandy, a couple generations later, invaded England, the Norman invasion, 1066, the Battle of Hastings. And then the English monarchy was, you know, two or three, four, five, six generations removed from Vikings themselves. But back to Sweden. So even though these Germanic people are spreading out like crazy and taking control of areas, Sweden itself remained kind of at the top of the world, kind of forgotten. And in fact, as most of Europe became Christian by this point in time, again, let's talk, you know, 800 AD, 600 AD, 700 AD. You would think by that point, six, seven, 800 years after Jesus lived, most of Europe would already be Christian. The North is not. It is in many ways a forgotten world. And this is a place where you'll still see the Nordic gods worshipped. Odin and Thor and all those, all those lovely Marvel movie characters now. So all the people of the North, they were the last Europeans to convert to Christianity. It took a very long time. For Sweden, it took about 400 years, from about 800 to 1200 AD. Over that 400-year span, Sweden slowly became Christian. And more specifically, Catholic Christian, Roman Catholic. And after Catholicism was this unifying force of these Norse people, there was a huge collection of nations called the Kalmar Union. Basically, all the Norse people, all the Nordic people, rather, from Greenland all the way to Finland, which the Finns aren't even Nordic, but they were occupied at the time. We'll talk about that in a minute. Became part of this big northern empire called the Kalmar Union. Massive. It existed from roughly 1388 to 1523. So I'm already up to 1523. Hold your britches. We're going to get we're going to get current real quick. In my brief research on the Kalmar Union, it appears that the Danes became more and more of the aristocracy of the Kalmar Union. And it was actually the Swedes specifically who were the ones to start the the process of dismantling this large empire. And so Sweden sort of emerges after 1523 as an independent nation. But don't forget, while all this is going on, even slightly before this, the Protestant Reformation has made it to the north of Europe. And Lutheranism is taking root among the peasants, among the poor, the regular folks of Sweden. The leadership, they're not very keen on it at first because they want to maintain their relationship and ties to the rest of Europe. Early on, if you became Lutheran, if your nation became Lutheran, you're kind of isolating yourself in a dangerous position, really, if you think about it. But as Lutheranism slowly took root, mostly among German nations, and then slowly moving north, it became apparent that if Sweden became Lutheran, they would be religious allies with a lot of their closest and most powerful neighbors. So eventually it became advantageous for Sweden to switch over. And at some point they did. 
Remember, the Swedes, they had only been Christian at all for a couple hundred years. Very slowly, by the way. So even in the year 1200, you'd probably still find a lot of pagans around. Not only that, but they were never part of the Roman Empire. Not nearly. Sweden doesn't even border it in, in ancient times like the Netherlands would have. So the mystique of Rome in general and Roman Catholicism never really took root in Sweden. That's what I would argue. So when an alternative became popular among the peasants, it wasn't such a hard transition to make. They were never under the mystique of Rome itself. By the beginning of the 17th century, Europe is embroiled in religious wars. And Sweden moves to the forefront as the leading power in these Protestant versus Catholic struggles. They are the Protestant warhorse. And this reputation was due inarguably to Gustavus Adolphus the Great, King of Sweden, leader of the Swedish Empire. Under his reign, he managed to create a Baltic Empire. He's going to control areas that are now Sweden, Finland, parts of the Baltic states, parts of northern Germany, parts of Denmark. Just basically, he's going to carve out the entire Baltic Sea to himself. And he does so by taking on every nation around him and winning. And he is not a decadent king of France that you would see in a textbook. These eastern and northern empires relied on kings who went to battle with their armies. So he was right there in the front line, winning every time, and it was due to his efforts, the effort he put into training his men, and his leadership ability. If you ever learn about the Thirty Years' War, he's one of the breakout stars. He's one of the heavy hitters. One of the most famous battles of the Thirty Years' War was the Battle of Lutzen. Gustavus, as the leader of Sweden, was inside of the territory of what we called the Holy Roman Empire which was not holy, nor Roman, nor an empire. But nonetheless, the political organization, which I don't have time to explain to you right now, was dependent, its, its whole legal existence was dependent on the Roman Catholic Church. It's inside of the name. So obviously, during these wars over religion, the Holy Roman Empire desperately wanted to maintain the Catholicism of all of its inside states. Gustavus, as an outsider was actually leading the Protestant states inside of the Holy Roman Empire into this battle. Casualties amounted on both sides. It was, it was a bloodbath. And it was ultimately, most historians considered a victory for the Protestant cause. However, our man Gustavus, leading a cavalry charge himself, got separated from his men. He ended up behind enemy lines. He was shot in the back. He was shot in the arm. We don't know exactly what happened. And at some point, he was stabbed, his horse was shot, and he was killed. His body was stripped of all valuable possessions, and eventually the Swedish forces found him and brought his body back to Sweden, where his wife kept his body in her castle for a year, mourning over him. And then eventually, when she was forced to bury him, kept his heart. Horrible story. Why did I tell you this story? Because now we're up to New Sweden. So Gustavus is going to die 1632. We're right in the wheelhouse of what's going to happen next. And his young daughter becomes the queen of Sweden. Gustavus left to her this massive empire. Again, this Baltic empire. And she was almost six years old. She became queen of Sweden when she was six. This great nation went from fighting all these powerful neighbors and winning, expanding rapidly and becoming a world power under basically the personality and pure will of this guy, Gustavus, and now he's gone. 
And now the entire empire is left to a six-year-old. This leaves Sweden in a bad position, to say the least. So, having already extended themselves over so much territory, now they're lacking leadership because they're being ruled by a little girl. Sweden at this time only has, estimates say, between 1 and 1.2 million people. And that's not including just the Swedes, that's including the Swedes and all the different ethnic groups around them that they have subjugated. By comparison, the Netherlands, as we've been talking about in this season, and by the way, this entire season is one linear story. Even though we jump around from subject, you can listen to it all in a row, and it'll make more sense than if you listen to it separated by titles. The Netherlands have anywhere from 200,000 to 600,000 more people than Sweden. The little nation of the Netherlands, the little engine that could, that took on the Spanish Empire. As unlikely as that was, Sweden's even smaller. And Sweden has to control way more territory. 15% of its population is urban, meaning 85% of their people are still rural, poor, peasant farmers. They have lots of raw goods, but very little industry. Meaning if they make too many enemies, they won't be able to get the manufactured goods you would need to defend yourself as a nation or go on the offensive. The largest city was Stockholm. And that only had 40,000 people. 40,000 people. That sounds like a large number, but chances are you live in a town of more than 40,000 people. Or you live in a county. You almost certainly live in a county of more than 40,000 people. That was the largest city in the entire Swedish empire. And now we turn to the dirty little secret of the New Sweden colony, though. A lot of the population of New Sweden were not Swedish. They were actually Finns. They were Finnish. And not entirely there by choice. So this brings us to our second half of our Who Were They segment, the Finns. The Finns are the historic neighbor of the Swedes. And during this time, they were under the rule of the Swedish Empire. The Finns and the Swedes are not terribly close related. In fact, the language that they speak, Finnish, in all of its forms throughout the ages, is not even related to Swedish. Swedish is a Germanic language. It's an Indo-European language. It's related to English and German and, believe it or not, Hindi over in India. It's related to Spanish and Russian and all these other languages. Most of the languages you could think of are on this Indo-European tree. Finnish is not. Finnish is not related to Swedish. It's on a much smaller tree called the Uralic family tree. Now, these languages, whatever group originated this family of languages, probably lived in what is now Siberia, just in Western Asia, somewhere very close to Europe. And Finnish is a Uralic language, along with Hungarian and Estonian and a bunch of languages spoken in the northern part of Russia, way in the middle of Central Asia, so North Central Asia. So this is a family tree that has most of its speakers way up close to the Arctic Circle. And as much as we think of Nordic people as being masters of the North, this group, the Uralic people, were probably at these northern latitudes long before these Indo-European groups moved in. So the Swedes were probably the newer neighbors to Scandinavia, and the Finns, old, old residents. Now, when the Swedes were converted to Christianity, Catholicism in particular, they took it upon themselves and other groups in combination to conduct what were called the Northern Crusades. Throughout the 12th and 13th century, the Swedes and other groups invaded areas occupied by Finns and Estonians and Latvians and what we call now today Lithuanians and forced them to convert to Catholicism. So this is in the 12th and 13th century. And then not too long after that, 
the Swedes are going to introduce them to Lutheranism. So the Swedes went from their native polytheistic beliefs to Catholicism and then very quickly to Lutheranism. And today that's still the dominant Christian denomination in Finland. But in the time that we're talking about, there isn't even the idea of Finland yet, really. We're talking about the 17th century, the founding of New Sweden. The Finns were an ethnic minority inside of the Swedish Empire. Small in number and spread out all over the place. Not in just modern-day Finland, but you could find them in what is now Estonia. And you could find them inside of the territory that is now the nation of Sweden. And they have no sense of national unity. They're not aware of other groups of Finnish people who are very far away. They still have tribal affiliations. They have not yet moved on to the realization that they are one larger ethnic group as we would see them today. Of course, this is all more or less culturally constructed. So they're still in the smaller mode of bands and tribes and localities, and they don't see the commonalities between them yet. So there is no Finland national movement to make its own country yet. It's not there. They're a minority inside of the Swedish Empire. And that's how the Swedes saw them. They saw them as backwards, uneducated. The area that is now Finland inside of the Swedish Empire was dominated by Swedish aristocrats. The Swedish language was the language of the government, the language of education there. The Swedes, who lived with Finns in their backwoods, would have seen them sort of how we have a negative image of hillbillies, let's say. And in fact, uh, they were often called drift fins or forest fins because they would practice what was called slash and burn agriculture, what the Native Americans did too. That's when, when you decide to be a farmer, instead of just clearing the land, cutting down the trees, digging up the roots, using that for lumber or what have you, clearing the rocks and making a rock wall to divide territory, you burn down entire forests and all the ash and leftover from the fire becomes essentially fertilizer that you can mix in with the soil and start growing crops from. Slash and burn agriculture. There's not a lot of work on the front end of it, but as you can imagine, things like that would grow out of control, even in the far reaches of the north. And so the Swedish were not very happy with these drift fins, these forest fins, because sometimes they would start fires that would end up destroying Swedish farms and Swedish towns. So one impulse that the Swedish had in heavy demand was getting rid of the Finns in their territory, moving them out because they were too destructive in their lifestyle. This is where a colony like New Sweden, far, far away from old Sweden, comes in handy. On top of having what the aristocracy considered an undesirable element of their population that they would like to export, there was this desire for the great Swedish empire, this great empire of the north, to have their own trading company to start thinking about colonies. Because at this time, all the great powerful nations had either colonies, trading companies, or some combination of both. And under the powerful last king, they tried to do just that four times. Four times they tried to put together a trading company that could compete with the best trading companies of England and the Netherlands. And in fact, the last time they tried to make a trading company, 1624, it was one of the founders of the Dutch West India Company who went to Sweden behind the back of his own company and said, hey, I think there's an opportunity here. Let's put together a trading company. His name was William Uselinix. I think I'm saying his name right. William Uselinix. William Uselix. I have no idea how to say his name. It doesn't matter. Let's move on. That deal fell through, but it wouldn't be the last attempt by the Dutch to go to Sweden and start a colony or a trading company under the Swedish crown. Now, you might say to yourself, well, why were the Dutch so willing to turn coat and go over to the Swedes? Well, at this time, the Netherlands and Sweden were, were very friendly, very powerful allies of one another. So neither was very large in population, 
But Sweden had lots of natural resources. Those resources were part of the Dutch trading empire, or the trading network, rather. So a lot of the Baltics in Northern Europe, Sweden was part of that network of goods flowing you know, in and out. And the Dutch were a huge chunk, I don't know the exact percentage, but a huge chunk of the merchants carrying those goods back and forth. The supply chain, the transportation, was provided by the Dutch. Dutch sailors, Dutch companies, Dutch ships. The lasting impact of this hegemony the Dutch had over the flow of trade is that a lot of the sailing terms that exist today, which if you're a sailor, you might know some of these, are Dutch in origin. So Sweden, being part of this Dutch enterprise, they were very close to seeing how the Netherlands were benefiting from having trade companies, most notably the East India Trade Company, the VOC as they called it. Now this is where a guy comes into play named Samuel Blamert. I mentioned him once before in an episode a long, long time ago. He's a very rich guy from Antwerp, originally anyway, and he's, he's up there with Van Rend. He's a rich Dutch merchant. He cut his teeth working for firms throughout Europe, had lots of connections. He worked for the VOC, the East India Company, like I just said, and he actually went to the East Indies. So this was a man who actually had some life experience beyond Europe. He became a director of the Dutch West India Company, that, that's the company that owned New Netherland, in 1622, and he held that position in 1629, and then he's going to pick it up even later after our story. So he's going to be around for a very long time. Here's this guy, Samuel Blomert. The important thing here is he was part of the Patroon faction that controlled New Netherland for a while under that guy, Killian Van Rensselaer, who we have mentioned before. Now, some experts, most experts say that that Patroon faction fell apart right around the time that Peter Minuet was fired or let go. I argue more or less that it kind of dissolved from within. And what we see here is that Peter Minuet doesn't quite like Van Rensselaer anymore, although he doesn't make those thoughts known. But he does like this guy, Samuel Blomert, who was another guy who tried to start a patroonship, a little fiefdom in the New World. Blomert. Samuel Blomert is the turncoat in question. He goes to Sweden, even when he was still well invested in the Dutch West India Company. And he says to Sweden, hey, Sweden. I got a plan. You've been wanting a trade company. Let's make a deal with one another. Now, who exactly is he talking to? You can't talk to the whole nation of Sweden at once. And you have a queen on the throne who's a child. As you would expect, the government at this time was controlled by high-ranking officials other than the queen until she was old enough to assume power. We see a couple different people here, and Blomert actually convinces them to invest personally into the company. So once they become personally invested into it, they manage to sway the whole country, the crown especially, the High Council, to come over to the idea. This is a time before formal capitalism. Government and business, they are in bed together, and that's seen as a good thing. Well, they're better at doing business, we're better at building nations and protecting people. Together, we'll combine forces and make successful companies. We see this with the Dutch West India Company, and to a lesser extent, the East India Company. Both of them have government seats on their board of directors. Both of them have government money, inside of their investments. So Blomert convinces the High Chancellor of Sweden, Oxenstierna, Axel Oxenstierna, I believe that's how you say his name, and Admiral Klaus Fleming of the Navy to invest in this company, be part of this idea, and the two of these two guys convince the Swedish government to starting a Swedish West India company. And perhaps to throw off the Dutch of where they intended to settle and do business, they called it the Swedish South Company. A very vague term when you're the nation of Sweden, considering how much is actually south of you. But here's the big question. Who's going to lead 
the founding of this colony. And where's this colony going to be? And what is their business going to be? How are we going to make our investment back? And that's when Blomert must have recommended Peter Minuet, because that's when he enters this story. Minuet comes in, and as we talked about before, he's the savior of the New Netherland colony. He set up New Amsterdam, the future New York City. He made peace with the Native Americans. He maintained peaceful relationships with the Native Americans. He kept the flow of trade from Fort Orange and the other surrounding rivers. He also made the land deals. And remember, the Dutch count deeds of land purchases from Native Americans as legal, whereas the English do not. They do not believe that Native Americans at this time have the ability to give away land because they don't use the land appropriately. The Dutch, they give the Native Americans more credit. They say, no, they live on this land, they own this land, we can buy it from them legally. So he even knows, well, New Netherland claims to be all the way from the Delaware River, called the South River, all the way over to the Fresh River, now known as the Connecticut River. But he knew for a fact that there were certain areas inside of that large territory, which is now encompassing something like six states, that purchases were not made for. So he knew under the Dutch scheme of buying land from the natives, and that would be their legal basis for owning that land, the Dutch themselves had not bought all the land. And specifically, even though it's been a couple years, Peter Minyot was pretty sure that the west side of the Delaware River had not been bought from the Native Americans yet. Meaning... If you could sneak your way in there, get yourself settled up and set up before the Dutch notice, make the purchases from the natives in the area, by even the Dutch scheme of land ownership in the New World, New Sweden, this trading company, would have a legal foothold in the New World. But it's going to be very hard to do. I believe in past episodes I talked about how the Dutch have been throwing the English out of the Delaware River. They keep trying to settle, the Dutch find them before they even get to land, pack them up, throw them back out to where they were. So the Dutch have been watching these river valleys very closely. And remember, by this time, the Connecticut River Valley had already been taken over by the English effectively. Okay, no paperwork has been done, no treaties have been signed yet. But of the three river valleys, or the three rivers, that make up New Netherland, one of them's already gone. You only got two left. The Dutch are on the lookout. Now here's the trick, here's the play. Picture a football play with all the lines and all the squiggles and whatnot. He's got to settle the land. Set up a fort dig in before the Dutch find you. Because if you got the purchases in the one hand and you're dug in on the other hand, forcibly removing the Swedish at that point would be an act of war. And Sweden and the Netherlands are Protestant allies at this point. Sweden, with its well-trained army and natural resources, and then the Netherlands, with their financing, were able to work together to keep these Protestant wars going in their favor, at least for a while. There's nothing short of an act of war between those two nations that would allow the New Netherland colony director to push them out. So it's kind of a Hail Mary. He's got to get right in there without alerting any of the trading posts that the Dutch have along the Delaware River. Things get even fuzzier than that because half of the financing initially for the new Sweden colony is going to be Dutch financing. It's going to be Blommer who's going to invest through Peter Minuet because he doesn't exactly want this to be known, okay? This is kind of an under-the-table deal. But other funding is coming in from the Netherlands, not to mention some of the sailors are going to be Dutch. I love talking about how New Netherland is not very Dutch. I, I bring that up time and time again. Well, here we are switching over to New Sweden and their part in this long season one story. And New Sweden isn't very Swedish. It has a lot of Finnish people, as we're going to see. And a lot, initially, the funding and the people and the sailors and 
everything else is going to be Dutch. So this entire company is like an unsanctioned spinoff of New Netherland. You got a lot of the same people. You got a lot of the same streams of money coming in. And you have the same aim, which is essentially to corner the beaver trade in that area. So Peter Minuet gets two ships to found this colony. And they leave Sweden. The ships are named the Kalmar Nikel and the Fogel Grip. Now, most of the information I get about New Sweden comes from this great author, C.A. Wesslager. He's the he's just the I don't know if he's around anymore. If he is, he's an older man. But he's published a number of books on New Sweden and related topics. I think I've read all of them. And he's really the only guy who was writing about New Sweden uh, from the 80s up until probably 12, 15 years ago. But as soon as they leave Sweden, there's a hitch in the plan. And they have to stop at Texel in the Netherlands for repair. Now, this is nerve-wracking. Think about this. Again, in order for any of this to work, you got to land, set up the colony. If you get caught, if this plan becomes known anywhere along the way by the Dutch, it's foiled. Now they're in Texel. They're in the Netherlands with the boats and the crew and the settlers. Everything that they have to set up that colony are right there in the Netherlands. That plan could get out at any moment. Peter Minuet must have been browning his britches. And as I said, although there's no surviving crew list, it's assumed that at least half of the people on these boats are from the Netherlands. And two of these people were Minuet's nephews. He has two nephews on board, trusted confidants. Because again, this is a Hail Mary play. This could fall apart at any moment. While in Texel and trying to keep everything hush-hush, he runs into the worst person possible to run into at this moment. We don't know where it happened. We don't know the exact day it happened. But at some point, while they're in for repairs on this top-secret mission, Peter Minuet runs into Killian Van Rensselaer. Friend, at least former friend, former employer, a man who is heavily invested in the Dutch West India Company. No one on the planet has more to lose from this secret mission of by the Swedes than Killian Van Rensselaer. And that's exactly who he runs into. Not a good day. I don't think Minuet was planning on seeing this man. I don't think he thought he would be in town. But he very quickly comes up with a lie. He says, we're going to Spanish Florida. Yeah, we're setting up some sort of operation in Spanish Florida. And of course, the Dutch who are Protestant and the Swedes who are Protestant, this made sense. You're going to a Catholic-controlled area, and you're going to try to push your way in. Makes sense. They're your natural enemy at this time. Van Rensselaer seems to buy it. Great, I'm out of this. But then he asks a favor of Peter Minuet. He says, hey, hey, bro. You know, could you do me a solid? I got these two guys that I want to send over to New Netherlands. Since you're heading that way, do you think you could drop them off? One of them's my nephew. Would you mind teaching him a couple things? He's a young man coming up in the world. He could use your experience. So now Peter Minuet is thinking, oh my God, how am I going to do this? If I say no, I'm going to raise suspicion. He's going to realize that I don't really like him anymore. And I know he was a backstabber. If I say yes, I got two people on this boat who at any time could figure out what, what is actually going on here. Weighing the two options, Peter Minuet eventually goes, fine, yeah, I'll take them, sure, no problem, won't, won't be an issue. And in reality, it won't be an issue, because they're going to essentially go to the south, southern part of New Netherland, so they're going to be very close by. And at some point, he actually does get those two men to New Amsterdam. And this was the smart decision, because as soon as they left the Netherlands, even if these two guys figured out what was going on, they're on the boat with everybody else. And they could hold them for a little while in New Sweden before they let him go back. We don't know exactly how they get to New Netherland, but they do. 
but it was actually smarter to have them in your possession than get there by some other means or raise suspicion in old Van Ren's mind. So after that close call, we'll skip right ahead. They make it across the Atlantic. They make it right to the opening of the Delaware River. Now this, this is where everything could fall apart, right? They could be discovered by the Dutch. Somebody goes up to New Amsterdam. You know, they, they come down with a couple men in arms. It's over with. So all of this could be a huge failure if this last move doesn't work. And the Dutch have a great reputation for protecting this exact riverway from invading other colonial powers. They've done this from the English a uh, number of times, sometimes in really crafty ways, uh, most of the time outnumbered. So in 1634, I have a story here. Englishman Thomas Yang, looking for the Northwest Passage, he goes up the Delaware River. He sees Fort Nassau, and him and his men, they capture it. I'm led to believe there was nobody at the fort at the time. But when the Dutch do show up again and they find their fort occupied by the English, the Dutch actually convince the English men that were left there by the captain that the natives in the area were going to eat them. And then the English people actually abandoned the fort and paid the Dutch to transport them out of there. So the Dutch are very good at protecting their claims. So now Minuet, if this was a game of baseball, he's on third base. He, home is in sight, and the guy watching third base is going to be Fort Nassau. Now, there was a Fort Nassau on the Hudson. This is the Fort Nassau on the Delaware. And in the story I just told you, that involved Fort Nassau also. Now, the thing is, after that event with the English, Fort Nassau was permanently inhabited by a couple Dutch troops from Fort Amsterdam. But Peter Minuet who was rumored to have secret maps of New Netherland, knew that Fort Nassau was on the east side of the Delaware River. Whereas all the trading is coming from the west side of the Delaware River. It's coming from inland, because the river runs north to south, and the furs are coming in from the west. Minuet realized if I could sneak onto the Delaware, and there are no boats coming in and out at the time, because the fort, while being manned, there, weren't, there wasn't very much traffic in and out of it. And he thought, well, if I set up my settlement on the west bank of the river, not only will I be closer to the Native Americans who are bringing furs into me, but if I set that settlement up further downstream than Fort Nassau, they won't even know I'm there initially. I won't have to cross by them to set up. And if my settlement gets big enough, I can command control of that river. I'm further, I'm, cl I'm closer to the outlet. Doesn't matter what you do at Fort Nassau, you still have to get by me in order to get out into the Atlantic. So as he sneaks onto the Delaware, and there doesn't appear to be any Dutch traders around, Dutch ships going in and out, he finds a space on the West Bank, far enough away from Fort Nassau, that he can start shooting a cannon off. Now, why would you shoot off a cannon? After being so sneaky for so long, why are you shooting off cannons suddenly? Well, I'll tell you why. He wants to buy the land from the Native Americans in the area. Now, he's previously purchased land for New Netherland. And there's been, to this day, there's some historical confusion of what exactly those deeds and land purchases uh, consist of. Take, for example, his purchase of Manhattan Island. All right. Now, if you look at that document, there's a lot of confusing questions there. Uh, many people today think that the deal Minu Minuet made wasn't even with the natives who occupied the majority of the island. So Minuet at this point had some experience with making deals with Native Americans, and he knew, okay, I got to shoot off cannons because I want everybody in this area. I want to make a deal with everyone 
Because I don't want there to be a hole in this deed. I don't want the Dutch to be able to come in and say, well, I know you bought, purchased it from this group, but this is the actual group that owns it. He didn't want any of this confusion, which there may have been at the time with the purchase of Manhattan Island, so that there would be no question that it was the Swedes who bought this territory from the right people in the right place. It's ours. When all the different tribes, mostly Algonquin people, when they come to meet him and they see his ship on the river, he invites them on board and he starts negotiating with them. Now, on board, he's packed a whole bunch of goods that a lot of his men on board were probably like, why are you bringing that? Why aren't you bringing more shovels and hoes and guns and, and seed and, and more livestock? Minuit actually packed on board pipes, mirrors, looking glasses, jaw harps, known as Jew harps back then, different types of metal rings, combs, copper and brass kettles. Now, to a Dutch sailor or a Swedish sailor, they might go, this is, you know, this is somewhat useful, but a lot of this is just kind of trinkety junk. But to the Native Americans at the time, these were luxury goods. These were the, these were things they never had access to. And Minuet knew that. He knows the Native Americans very well. Imagine never having seen yourself in a mirror, never had a clear reflective image of yourself to look at. And then all of a sudden this man comes around and he has a handheld mirror where you can just stare at yourself. How long would you look at yourself? Let's say you're 40 years old. I don't know how old you are. Just You know your own age. Let's say you hadn't seen yourself at all in a clear image up until this point in your life. And I just hand you this mirror. And now all of a sudden you could see yourself. How long would you stare at yourself? I think I would look at myself for 45 minutes. I'd sit there. I go, oh, wow, I really look like my brother. I kind of look like my dad. I'd be doing this, all these sorts of mental gymnastics in my head to try to try to make sense of what I look like. So Minuet knew what the natives wanted, and he was willing to give out all sorts of gifts. He made a deal right there in his boat on the spot, made the first purchases for New Sweden. When everything was said and done, he went ashore and he erected the coat of arms of the Queen of Sweden. And now the western bank of the Delaware River was effectively inside of New Sweden territory. Now remember, furs are coming from further inland. Fort Nassau happened to be on the east bank of the Delaware. What Minuet very smartly did was cut off Fort Nassau from trade. They're going to offer the natives better deals, and it's going to be a shorter journey to trade with the Swedish. What the English did on the Connecticut River to cut off Dutch trade with just sheer numbers, Peter Minuet did with experience and intelligence. And then they very quickly got to work building their first settlement. They built a fort, named it Fort Christina after the Queen. And that settlement to this day is now known as Wilmington, Delaware. It took about a month for the Dutch to even notice the Swedish colony was there. And by that time, they'd worked hard, they dug in, and you weren't going to remove them except by force. It would be an act of war. And the director of a colony does not have the power to declare war on another nation's colony. Not usually, not in the Dutch case. So the Swedes were there to stay. Peter Minuet was victorious having previously saved the New Netherland colony and then was fired or let go in disgrace, he built himself back up with all the knowledge he had and proved himself again by planting the Swedes right inside of New Netherland, taking a huge bite out of it and making New Sweden. He was right. He went back to his former employers, he showed what he was worth, and he took over a whole huge chunk of them. Huge accomplishment. Furthermore, between being the savior of one colony and the founder of another colony, he plays a heavy role in the foundation and legacy and continuation of six out of the 13 American colonies. And yet most people only know him for the purchase of Manhattan Island. 
So why in American history is Peter Minuet more of a footnote and less of a figure? The best answer I could come up with is he wasn't English. He didn't work for the English. And a lot of American history, until recently, well, recently in, uh, let's say the last 50, 60 years, we'll, we'll give academia at large credit here, has been focused on the English story. So it didn't matter that the Swedes had a, the colony or, or the Dutch had a colony or the Native Americans were there. What were the English doing? When did they show up? How did they form their colonies that became the 13 original colonies? And we forget that maybe there was some fingerprint left in these colonies by earlier powers in charge. Anyway, when he leaves his settlement, knowing that he placed it strategically further inland, stealing all the trade from the Dutch, and he knew it was now built in and secured from any immediate Dutch attack, he leaves a slave from Angola, one slave, in the new Sweden settlement. Now, this is weird because we don't have a lot of documentation on this, but it seems that this slave was freed at a certain point. He was given the rights of a regular colonist. In New Sweden, after this point, they do not import slaves at any point. They're involved mostly in the fur trade. Slavery was, is not necessarily, it's not at all a part of the story of New Sweden, as far as I know. So this one guy is bought. At some point, he is set free. Why? Why is that one guy there? Well, he was there, most likely, to teach the colonists from Sweden, a lot of Finns, a lot of Swedes, some Dutch people, how to farm tobacco. How to, how to be part of this cash crop system. Because in addition to collecting furs, which is an unsteady business and can be seasonal, they were also thinking about growing tobacco, which was just crushing it in markets around the world at this time. And growing tobacco was of a particular interest to Peter Minuet because he got the rights to be the exclusive importer of tobacco to the nation of Sweden, who had not yet caught on to the tobacco bug. So there's this huge unexplored market and it was all going to go into his pocket. Victorious, and on his way back to Sweden, his ship stops at St. Christopher. And there are a lot of Dutch traders there, a lot of Dutch ships. He spends the day on a Dutch ship called the Flying Deer, or the Flying Heart. I have different sources that say different things, and I'm not smart enough to figure out which one is the truth here. So it's the Flying Something, the Flying Deer, or the Flying Heart. He goes out onto the Dutch ship, suddenly a storm rolls in. A bunch of ships disappear and are never seen again. That's the end of Peter Minuet. Dissatisfied? I know you are. I have nothing else to give you. His story is very similar to the story of Henry Hudson, if you follow the beats of it. The switching jobs, switching employers, being fired, proving you were something after all. And then at the end, he's just gone. Here we are, Peter Minuet, one of the most important figures in American history, I would argue. And I have no ending for you. The ship was never seen again. This has been the Other States of America History Podcast. Thank you for listening.